change is inevitable. And while we have talked in the last two podcasts about seasons of waiting, now we're going to move into another season of life, a season when everything is changing, when the stress level is high, when life seems to be out of control, when change is coming at you so fast, you can't even process the changes that are in front of you. Now, some changes are good, but some changes barrel in our lives uninvited, unasked for, and they bowl us over with fear and with stress. I'm glad you joined me today. My name's Jennifer Matthewson Spear, and this is Word of Joy. When Joshua and the children of Israel are about to go into the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised them, everything in their life is about to change. Now, granted, some changes are good. I live in South Florida, and sometimes I miss the change of seasons that I used to enjoy in Tennessee and in Southern Illinois. I liked it when I could change those clothes in the closet and go from the summer clothes to the fall clothes to the winter clothes. Those were exciting changes. I look at the changes that have taken place over the last hundred years or so in the medical field, and because I'm a cancer survivor, I am so thankful for those changes. You look back at, at just the way we live and the luxuries that we enjoy. Over a hundred years ago, only 14% of households had bathrooms. Everything was outside. Well, I'm so very thankful for that change. Only 8% of households had telephones, and now we have communication at our fingertips, and I like that change most of the time. There's been changes in the life expectancy. A little over 100 years ago, the life expectancy in America for a man was 47 years of age, and now it is much more than that. There are changes that I really like. One day I was talking to my dad when he was alive and I was studying this passage of scripture and I said, dad, what's the greatest change you have seen in your life? And my dad just always had this way of getting to the point and saying something very wise and plain. And he said, the polio vaccine. And I pondered that. I mean, this man had seen people walk on the moon. He's seen the the introduction of the internet in his 80-something years. He had seen so many changes. Why would he say that simple polio vaccine? And then I remembered his dad had suffered from polio. And they'd grown up in that rural Alabama area, and so many of his friends and family members had suffered from that terrible disease. And so when his young children were able to receive that vaccination, and he was assured that they would not get polio, to him, that was the greatest change of his lifetime. Change can sometimes be good, but we typically resist change. In a recent survey of high-level CEOs, the consensus was that in a major corporation, change has to take place every, once every three years just to keep people from resisting change. Typically, we don't like too much change. We, and the changes that come, we like to be in control of. But what about change that just races through our life and we didn't invite it, we didn't want it, and we certainly want God to change it? How do we live victoriously when life is changing, when cancer comes or illness comes, when finances are difficult, when relationships sour, when there's a, a prodigal or a problem in our home? How do we deal with those kinds of changes? Well, I believe Joshua and the children of Israel who are about to encounter incredible change have some wise, God has wise words for us, the same words that he gave to Joshua. 
Indeed, everything in Joshua's life is about to change. Moses, their leader, is dead. And now Joshua, the younger, although not young, but younger and less experienced leader, is about to take the helm. They have wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their sin at Kadesh Barnea, and and they are about to enter into the promised land. Those 40 years of wandering are over. The manna that has fed them all those years is about to dry up. God miraculously spared their shoes and their clothes from wearing out as they wandered in the desert. And now they would have to learn to make new shoes and new clothes. They would have to fight battles that they had never fought before. They would have to go into a land that they had never seen. And there was stress and there was fear. And I think if it had been me, I might have said, you know, the desert is just not really that bad. And that manna, why we have just learned to cook it so many different ways. I think we could, I think we can handle this for the rest of our lives. You see, I don't really like change. I like green pastures and still waters. As a matter of fact, yesterday I changed our cable company or the way we get television in our house. And there was a tightness in my chest because I was going to have to change everything, every password, every computer, every phone, everything. And I, I really don't like even those kind of changes. And yet change is going to come. And how do we live in the change? Because God certainly didn't design Israel to stay in the desert. He has designed them for a life of abundance in the promised land. So what do we do? When you look at Joshua chapter 1, it is such a personal word to Joshua. 20 times God says to Joshua, he uses the word you your. It is if God has taken his hands and put them on Joshua's face and says, listen to me, Joshua. And today, if your life is changing at such a rapid place, pace and you feel so out of control, God has his hands on your face and he is saying, look at me, child. I have words of encouragement for you, words of victory for you as you live in this constant change. Three times God will tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. All of the terminology in the book of Joshua is framed in military terminology. It is a battle scene book. It is a book not about, not about um, going into a peaceful place, but going into a land that they must take possession of. And so many times we have erroneously in the Christian faith looked at crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land as our leaving this life and going into heaven. And, and, and while that is a very nice picture, it is not what's scripture is teaching. When we leave the desert of disobedience and we walk into the land of victory, and that is what God's picture of the promised land is to we as believers. It is this land of victory. It is this life that we have inherited in Christ where there will be battles, where there will be hardship, when things will change, when we will have to look closely at where God is leading. This life that we have, this land of Canaan, is what we are living here and now. This life of promise in Christ. And God is saying to us, just as he is saying to Joshua, be strong and courageous when everything in your life feels overwhelming. And then God is going to give him some particulars about the things that he can trust in. Because anytime life is changing, it is a call for believers. It is a call for those who have a relationship with God to exercise their faith, to trust, to trust in the Lord like we've been talking about 
in the previous podcast. And in this little short passage that we'll look at today in Joshua chapter one, we can trust that God's promises are true, that God's principles are right, and that God's presence is sure. Today, just, let's just look at God's promises are true. In Joshua chapter one, verse two, God is speaking directly to Moses. Everything is changing. And he says that right off the bat. Moses, my servant, is dead. The past is gone. This is a new day with new leadership. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses... So I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. In verse 2 and 3, God uses some interesting phrases. He says, I am giving. And he also says, I have already given. There is a continuation of giving and there is a past have already given. So what, has he given it? Is he going to give it? What is God saying to Joshua? I believe God is saying to Joshua, there is a participation element to this. Yes, he has given it. Yes, he has promised. He swore to give it to them. And yet Joshua and the people must participate in making the land yours. And he says, every place the sole of your footsteps, I am giving you or I have already given you that land. You have to participate in this. He says, it's like giving a gift. If I give you a gift, you have to receive it. You can receive it and, and stick it under the Christmas tree and never open it, never use it. It's still your gift. I still gave it to you. But if you want to fully enjoy that gift, you have to unwrap it. You have to use it. You have to put it into your life. And it is the same with this land that God has given. He's already given it to them. Now they must take it. They must participate with him. And then in verse four, God defines the boundaries. It's not just any land. It's not just any place, but this is a good land that God has a designated area for them. But then there are wonderful words that say, God would not forsake his people and he would not forsake his leader. That word fail means he won't relax his hands. He won't let them down. He will never forsake them. He will never relinquish them or set them free. They are secure in his hands and no man can stand before them and no one can defeat him, them. And the first time God says, be strong and courageous, Joshua, because you have a permanent possession of this land. God says, I have sworn to your fathers. I have sworn to your ancestors to give it to you, to swear. When God says, I swear, it means to take an oath. A long time ago, we used to watch those um, courtroom dramas like Perry Mason, and we would watch them uh, put their hand, one hand on the Bible and raise the other hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. 
But in this passage, when God swears, when he takes an oath, it is as if he is laying his hand not upon a Bible, but he is laying his hand upon himself because there is no higher authority by which to swear. And he says, I have sworn to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to their descendants, to Moses. It's repeated in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Joshua could take comfort and draw strength in the fact that God keeps his word. The promises of God flow from the holy, flawless, faithful, unchangeable character of God. He does not change and he does not lie. The promises of God are are true. In 1916, a lady by the name of Hattie Green died. And when she died, her estate was worth a hundred million dollars. That's a lot of money today, but it was really a lot of money in 1916. But even though her estate was worth a hundred million dollars, she lived like a pauper. She often ate cold oatmeal because she said it cost too much to heat it up. Her son suffered a leg amputation from an injury while Hattie was looking for a free clinic to take him to. She died of complications of malnutrition. She lived beneath her privilege. She lived beneath her wealth. She never enjoyed the blessing of what she had. And I fear today there are many Hattie Green Christians. We have the wealth of God's promises given to us in Jesus Christ. And yet we choose to live beneath the privilege of who we are as children of God. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 read like a laundry list of who we are in Christ and what we have available to us because of that relationship with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen. We have grace lavished upon us. We have redemption and forgiveness. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have this great love. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are saved by grace. We have the peace of God and the peace with God. And we are fellow citizens with other believers. There's so much more. All of scripture is ours to embrace, to to learn from. And God has given us so many promises in his word that we can apply to our hearts. And yet we are living beneath our privilege. We are living like Hattie Green Christians. And we are not hearing the Lord say, be strong and courageous. My promises are true. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call on me. I will answer you and show you great and mighty things you do not already know. Joshua 29, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. There are countless promises made available to us in the word of God. Certainly some of them apply only to the nation of Israel. Some of them are for the future, but so many of them are for now. And we do not have to live beneath our privilege as children of God. We embrace the promises that he has given to us. The night that my husband died, I was so filled with fear. 
And I was asking him, how do I raise two boys without a father? I didn't even, I didn't even know how, how to buy a cemetery plot or how to go about making funeral arrangements. I was just so filled with fear. And, but my greatest fear was, how do I raise these boys? And how will they ever know the father's voice? And how will they ever find their way in this world without his guidance? And I slept that night just an hour or two. And the next morning, my Bible was on the nightstand. And I just grabbed my Bible. And I'm such a methodical reader of God's Word. I grabbed my Bible and I just flipped it open, which I never do. And it was like God had a spotlight that morning in my, in my distress. And He was shining it on a promise that has become a promise for me for all these years. It was Matthew chapter 7, verse 25. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. The 21 years that Dana and I were married, we had made an effort to found, establish our home on the rock of Jesus Christ. And on that night, the storm burst against our house. And I needed to know in the change of life that had come barreling into my home that would wreck and ruin so many things that God's promises were still true. And he gave me that word. The house won't fall, Jennifer. I've got your boys because you have founded it on the rock. In those weeks and months and years that would follow, the promises of God just became sweeter and sweeter to me. Psalm 34:10. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 86:7. In the day of trouble, I will call upon thee, and you will answer me. Isaiah 43:18 and 19. Do not call to mind the former things and don't ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. It will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Promises that God met me with every day. Not promises that I could fashion to my own liking or to my own design, but promises that he would speak into my life and clearly announce to me through the Holy Spirit. Folks, if you are going through changes in your life, the primary tool that God will use to help you through the stress, to help you to the next level, to help you do whatever is the next thing is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit's primary tool is always the Word of God. And if the Word of God is void from your life, you cannot expect peace in the turbulent times. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need to live in the land of victory. We have the wealth of God's promises because of our relationship with Christ but just like Israel, God defines the boundaries. He told them it was not just any land or any place, but he gave in those verses well-defined boundaries. We don't get to just claim anything we want. We don't get to make up 
things that we want God to do, pray real hard, and then expect him to come through for us, there are indeed boundaries. The Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. And while we like that verse, we have to understand what it literally means. We cannot just think of a good idea and say, now, God, this is not impossible, so I'm expecting you to do it. And somehow thinking that we have, have mustered up enough faith to coerce God to doing what we want him to do. That is not at all the spirit of Scripture, and that is certainly not what Luke 1.37 is saying. Nothing is impossible with God. It literally means no word spoken is impossible with God. In other words, anything that God has already said, he will do. It is not impossible. And so we have to understand and know what God has said and what he has said is made available to us in his word. And just like those Israelites, God is saying to us, I will not let you go. I will not relinquish you. I will not set you free. I will not fail you. Ephesians says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a permanent transaction. God is not moving in and out of us based on our behavior. Our salvation is not based on our faithfulness. It is based on the faithfulness of God. And this walk of victory that we want to have when life is changing is not based on how strong we are, but on how strong he is. He will not let us go. His promises are true. When I was in college, I, I was a singer in a contemporary Christian group, and it was the 70s, and, and contemporary Christian music was just making a grand arrival on the scene. And, and this group that I was in was singing a song that I just really liked. I thought it was a wonderful song. We recorded it. I brought that little cassette tape home, and I stuck it in the car, and my mom was with me. I said, Mom, you got to hear this great song. It's just the, it is just the greatest song. It's one of my favorite songs we sing. And I began to sing along as the song came on to the little tape player. And these were the words, hold on, keep holding on, holding on, keep holding on, holding on, keep holding on. That was all it said, the whole song. That was it. And the song was over. And I looked at my mom and said, hey, mom, wasn't that the greatest song ever? And she just said, it's wrong. I was horrified. How could she say my favorite contemporary Christian song was wrong? She said, it's wrong, Jennifer. I said, what do you mean, mom? It's wrong. It can't be wrong. It's wrong. It is never your responsibility to hold on to God. It is God's responsibility to hold on to you. In the darkest days of my life, I have remembered those words that my mom spoke to a young college student. Days when I could not hold on. I didn't have the mental strength or physical strength to hold on to this relationship with God. But he, as he promised Joshua, as he promised the children of Israel, and as he has promised you and me, I will not fail you. I will not relax my hands. I will not relinquish you. I will not set you free. I will hold you. That's good news. The promises of God are still true. And interestingly enough, the promises of God are true whether we know them, trust them, or even believe them. There are promises through Jesus Christ if you have a relationship with him by grace. Our son, my oldest son, was in the fifth grade and he decided he wanted one of those 
trick bikes. He had seen all the extreme sports and all the tricks and the things those guys could do, and he was just mesmerized by it. And he wanted one of those bikes, those bikes with the pegs that you could spin the whole front of it around and stand on it and flip on it. And he just thought he was the next big thing. So we made a sacrifice, and we bought one of those bicycles for him. And he would ride it, and he would try, and he, could, he really got pretty good at it. And he took that bicycle back into the woods with one of his buddies and they made a, a ramp and they were just taking those bicycles as fast as they could and ramping and flying through the air until my son flew through the air and missed the bicycle and landed on his back. And his buddy left him in the woods and he finally got home. And we realized later he had cracked a little bone at the base of his spine. You know, he never used that bicycle again. It sat in the garage for years. And, and after his dad died and I was about to move, I, I, I called him and I had to ask him. I said, son, what do, what do you want me to do with the bicycle? It's your bicycle. We bought it. It's yours. Whether you've ever ridden it again or not, it belongs to you. Folks, sometimes we walk through this Christian life and we fall off. Things get tough. Life moves at a fast pace and, and we're not the hot shot we thought we were. And we leave the promises of God behind. But folks, they're yours. They're always yours in Christ. Whether you know them, use them, or believe them in this season of life. But I'm here to tell you, God has his hands on your face. And he is looking into your eyes. And he is saying, be strong and courageous. The promises of God are true. Thanks for joining me today. And I hope that you will realize in the depths of your soul that God's promises are for you. They're available in his word and they will help you to walk victoriously when life is changing.